One of the greatest things about our Football by Numbers series is having these great experts on, uh, some great friends that I've developed that know a lot about football. Larry Schmidt's one of them. We, he talked about with number ones with us. He was on a bunch of the different programs. Well, he talks about jersey number seven with us in this episode and all the great players that played with that number on. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Ladies and gentlemen of the Pigpen, we are glad once again to have Larry Schmidt of the Gridiron Uniform Database and Big Blue Interactive uh, with us. And since I think this might be the third time you hear his voice on this podcast, maybe we can put him as a contributor to the Pigskin Dispatch uh, podcast too. Uh, Larry Schmidt, welcome once again to the Pigpen. Thank you for having me back, Darren. Well, we're sure glad that you were able to come back with us. Uh, today, Larry, we are still in our journey going the football by numbers series is what we're calling it. And we are all the way up to the jersey number seven and all the greats that have wore that uh, jersey throughout the NFL history. So we have a hundred years to, to choose from. Um, I, I guess, uh, where, where do you want to start off here? We, we have seven Hall of Famers, I guess, and then we're going to try to come up with a sort of our dirty dozen, the, the 12 best, uh, most substantial players that have ever wore the number seven in the NFL. So maybe I guess we should. Hall of Famers, and we have, um, I think we have five or six guys who have had their number seven retired by their respective teams. I believe you're right. So I guess my, let's start off with the obvious choices. We'll go off with the seven Hall of Famers. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right. Where, where would you like to kick off at with those Hall of Famers? Start with um, chronologically the the man whose fingerprints are all over the NFL as a, a player, a coach, um, an owner. Um, he was there at the Hupmobile Showroom in Canton when the NFL was or the APFA was formed. George Hallis, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And his, you know, interestingly, when I was going through my research, you know, the Bears retired number seven in George Hallis's honor. But as I went through the list, and, um, we, you know, not to jump ahead, but Ed Sprinkle also wore number seven. And I remember Bob Avellini, you know, watching football in the 70s and early 80s, Bob Avellini also wore number seven for the Bears. So, um, obviously, it was retired um, posthumously for Mr. Hallis. <laughs> I, I guess so. Or it was like a, sort of a, a Brett Favre retirement where he kept go, retiring, coming back out with that number seven. As a, as a coach, <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, and he has the uh, the dual honor Hall of Fame or triple honor Hall of Fame, number seven retired. And he has his initials on the Bears sleeve as well. GSH. Yeah, definitely an important figure in NFL history uh, and uh, definitely should be in the Hall of Fame with the inaugural class of the, the Hall of Fame uh, because of his contributions. Let's, uh, what do we what do we know about him as a player wearing the number seven? Well, unfortunately, you know, statistics weren't kept when he played in the 1920s. He played from 1920 to 1928 as a player, coach, owner, you know, Mr. Everything. But he was a um, he was not a large man to play ends, but he was known as being an effective player on defense, and he was a hard hitter. And the only statistics we have on him, you know, we don't have rushing yards, number of receptions, receiving yards, but we, you know, the only thing we know about him are his touchdowns scored. Right. And uh, how, how many do you have for him on that? He had one rushing, possibly on an end around, and he had six receiving, and he has three defensive scores to his credit, uh, two fumble recoveries for a touchdown and also an interception. So he has 10. And he also, um, in 1922, kicked two extra points. Adding to his uh, Mr. Do, Mr. Do Everything. <laughs> scored, a, right. scored a touchdown and uh, kicked the extra point. It <laughs> doesn't get much better than that. Well, he was a real renaissance man of the gridiron, that is for sure. Well, yeah, he is definitely uh, on our, our list of 12, I would say, uh, being the Hall of Famer. And I, I think next uh, 
Well, I'll let you take us in New York. Keep going chronologically. Go ahead, go ahead and bring up our next uh, candidate. Next, we would have Mel Hine of the Giants. Right, and I think this is one of a personal favorite of yours. This is uh, one of those ones when I said, uh, who would like to discuss the number sevens? Your hand went up right away, and uh, I think this might be the gentleman you wanted to talk about. Uh, well, yep. He's, um, you know, one of the uh, most legendary Giants. He played, he held the record up until um, Eli Manning of the most seasons played as a Giant with 15. And that was, you know, most notable because he was a two-way player. He played offense and defense. He played from 1930 through 1945. And most people remember or they recognize Mel Hine as being the greatest center ever. But they don't. Very few people are aware of how effective of a defensive player he was. You know, he was a, a prototype linebacker for the time. They weren't true linebackers until the 1950s, but he played standing up. He didn't have a hand down on the ground. And I'm friends with a gentleman whose father, Hat Morin, played with Mel Hine, uh, Mike Morin. He lives here in the, the same town as me. Wow. And he told me that his father said, Mel Hine was an impact player on defense, and he could change the course of a game playing defense, you know, much like, you know, giant fans of, you know, my era, the 80s, remember Lawrence Taylor taking over a game on defense. He said Mel Hine could do the same thing in a game in the 30s and the 40s. Well, that's impressive. (laughs) Yeah, and through my research and reading um, game summaries in newspapers, you know, he could – he's one of the few players who could tackle Bronco Nagurski of the Bears, who was this big, hulking fullback who, when he played defense, played defensive tackle. That tells you how big he was. You know, uh-huh. Mel Hine could, could tackle him one-on-one, but he would also – you know, Hine had the speed and the agility, the athletic ability to cover the best receiver of his era, Don Hudson, on the outside. You know, Steve Hohen and the Giants – you know, Steve Owen, the head coach, the defensive genius who later invented the umbrella defense. The Giants had a lot of pretty good success against uh, Don Hudson, keeping his receiving statistics down. And a lot of that was he would have Mel Hine cover him, you know, through the first half of his route, you know, coming off the line through the middle of the defense, and then he would pass him off to the safety almost in a sort of an early concept of what a zone defense would end up being. You know, that, that's you know, just... That's amazing to sit there and think about it. Okay, so you have a, a, a man that played center on offense, offensive lineman, yep. a defensive lineman, covering the top wide receiver in the NFL at the time, uh, you know, on the, yeah. all the under coverage. That's amazing. And then dropping the pads to take on Bronco Nagurski. <laughs> right, right. Wow. That's, wow. Pretty, that's pretty rare ability. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, a, a couple of years ago, the Giants had me down to their facility for some interviews and – you know, we were talking, I was talking to the producer and the director, telling him how I would love to do some players like Mel Hine and Tuffy Lehmans. And, you know, because the show, this doesn't really go back further than the 50s. And they said, you know, the problem is footage. We don't have enough footage on these guys. It's hard to put, you know, it's fine, I, you know, the way we're doing it on a podcast. But when people are watching television, they want to see highlights. Right. You need the visual. Yeah, there's very few. There's just some newsreel footage of, you know, just little short clips. And I guess that's why guys like George Hallis and Mel Hine aren't as remembered because, you know, there's not that much that you get to see on NFL films highlights of them as a player. You know, everybody remembers George Hallis as a coach, you know, wearing the fedora and the trench coat. And, you know, there's not enough footage of them as players. And to to find out about them, you have to go through the old newspapers. (laughs) But game summaries, and maybe you can find a photo here and there. <laughs> that, that's very true. One thing that's impressive that the NFL does recognize Hine for, he made the 50th, the 75th, and the 100th anniversary all-time teams. I mean, that's that's quite a feat right there to go back 100 years and you're still on the all-time yeah. team. Very substantial yeah. player. Yeah, and in my um, in my research, I also learned that Later on, Mel Hine was a coach at USC, and he was on the same staff with Al Davis, and he became good friends with Al Davis. 
And when Al Davis in the 60s took over the Raiders, his center was Jim Otto, you know, the all AFL center. Right. And, um, and Al Davis would show Otto film of Mel Hine from the 1930s and the 1940s, teaching him how to snap the ball accurately, how to come out of his stance and get into a block. He's showing him film from a player a generation before him. <laughs> That's quite the role model to have, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So well, just last year, my a friend of mine, another friend of mine, John Birdie, he contributes the Giants' all-time roster for their media guide. And it was last April or May he sent me an email when he was going through his data and he was comparing it against the NFL encyclopedia, he came up short three games. You know, one of Mel Hines' claims to fame on the Giants' website, in the media guide, on the Pro Football Hall of Fame website, you know, Mel Hines played every game. He never missed a game in his 15 years. So we said, Larry, you know, I need your help. You know, the Giants played 14 games in 1933. I only have Hines playing 12. And in 1936, they played 12 games. I only have him playing 11. And I'm like, how could this be? You know, my whole life, you know, Mel Hines played every game. He was a 60-minute guy. never missed a game. Right. So I went into the newspapers, and I started in 1936. I figured I would work backward. And I was in November, and I started seeing these clips. They were AP clips that would be sent around the country. And it said, Mel Hines center of the New York Giants has missed only one game in six years. I'm like, okay. So oh. I, I, I never, ever, ever heard this before, but here it is in multiple newspapers in November. It was November 3rd, 1936. So I did my due diligence. I finished out you know, the game programs, the box scores, all the summaries for 36. He did play every game, but it got very interesting when I got to 1933. It was on November 19th. The Giants were playing the Bears at the Polo Grounds in New York. And, you know, typically you would expect 1933 Giants-Bears is a very, very physical game. The Giants ended up winning 3-0. to zero. But there was a report in the newspaper in the middle of the week that Mel Hine came out of that game a little banged up. You know, they didn't have injury reports, you know, probable questionable. There was no specific mention of an energy. They just said he was banged up and he wasn't practicing. Hmm. So on the next week, it was Sunday the 26th, they were playing the Packers at the Polo Grounds. And it's fortunate that the game was in New York because I have multiple newspapers that I can cross-reference with. The New York Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Herald Tribune. And in this case, I also used one of the Brooklyn newspapers, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, because depending on the reporter and who was at the game, some guys, you know, they always list the starting lineup. Some would just take the 11 that they had listed on the program. Some guys would take who was actually on the field for the first snap of the game, which was fortunate. So I could cross-reference them because in this case, two guys used the program. They had Hine in there, but then the other two had the Giants' other center, and I'm like, oh, no, what happened? And I went through the substitutions, and Mel Hine sat the first half of this game against Green Bay, but he did enter in the third quarter. He played the second half, so he didn't have a start, but he had the game played. Ah, wow, that's, that's some great due diligence there. And then the Giants' next game being Thanksgiving, it was on Thursday, it was a short week. They played the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn on the 30th, and being a short week, Hine couldn't go. He ended up not playing, and again, it was I had to check multiple box scores. Hine didn't start, and he never entered the game. He wasn't listed in the substitutions. His next game played was December 12th, I'm sorry, December 3rd, they played the Pittsburgh Pirates at home at the Polo Grounds, and then Hein came back, finished out the season, played the championship game. So that was his one game missed. So when I got back in touch with my friend, John, I said, all right, here's what I got. He did miss this game against the Dodgers on Thanksgiving in 1933. 
we had to let people know. So he had to let the Giants know. And the Giants, you know, I checked the Hall of Fame website this morning. They still haven't updated it. They still have him never missing a game. But the Giants corrected their media guide. They have it hide in a couple of places. They have his Hall of Fame bio. And they note that he did miss the one game. But because of that odd discrepancy in the pro football encyclopedia, even though we had him missing a game, we increased his game's play total by two. Because they had it at 170, we actually increased him to 172 games played out of 173. So somehow when they put the NFL encyclopedia together, we, it was in the early 1970s, somebody miscounted, and for 40-whatever years, almost 50 years, nobody caught it. <laughs> so they were actually shorting him three games. We found he missed one, but we increased his overall total by two. But I think he definitely deserves an asterisk by his name for that one game missed being on a short week of Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> hey, Thursday football, it's always it's never been a good right. idea. <laughs> yeah. We don't like it now, they didn't like it then. That's for <laughs> hey, you know, it wasn't playing. uncommon for teams to play three games in seven days. The, the Giants played on Thanksgiving, but then they played three days later on Sunday. <laughs> it's not like you play on Thursday and then you get it's like a ten days off. You just wow. play three games in seven days, or three days, three games in eight days, <laughs> and you play well, both ways. You play, you play defense, you play offense. That, and, that's, and no, no Sundays off. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Well, definitely, Mel Hine is on our list there. That's definitely great, great research on your part. Uh, how about we talk about uh, Mr. Bob Waterfield next? He's a, also in the Hall of Fame. What, what do you have on Bob Waterfield? Uh, he played for the Cleveland and the Los Angeles Rams Hall of Fame. The Rams have his number seven retired. He was a member of the 1946 Cleveland Rams NFL champions. They beat the Redskins that year on a frozen field. And in 1950, the Rams had a great year in Los Angeles where they are still the highest scoring team in NFL history. They averaged just short of 39 points a game. Wow. Think of modern football with all the rules that favor offense and passing the ball. Here he was about splitting time with Norm Van Brocklin. The two of them combined for nearly 40 points a game back in 1950, where you could hit the quarterback, you could mug receivers going down the field, and, uh, you know, you could only imagine how many points per game they would have put up if they had today's rules back then in 1950. Yeah, that's for sure. And to boot, he was married to Jane Russell for a while. <laughs> that's right. Hey, it's a good move for him going from Cleveland to Los Angeles, wasn't it? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, Miss Russell probably didn't, wouldn't want to live in the cold of the, uh, the no, uh, northeast, I know. I don't midwest think so. of Cleveland. Much, much nice, the weather's much nicer there in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, I agree. <laughs> well, I'd say definitely Bob Waterfield on the list. Great, uh, Great athlete in the NFL. Who do we have next up on our Hall of Famers for number seven? We have, we have Dutch Clark. Oh, yes. Of the Portsmouth Spartans and then later the Detroit Lions. One of the, he might be the last true triple threat player. He could run, he could pass, and he could drop kick. Hmm. He's very nice. Like George Hallis, although he kicked a lot more extra points than George Hallis did. I think Dutch Clark led the NFL, I think, two. I know he led the NFL in touchdowns scored three times, and he led the league in extra points three times as well. And he led the league in field goals once, too, and he did it drop kicking. He was the last regular drop kicker. He played up through 1938. You know, by that point, the NFL started using the modern, more streamlined ball for passing since 1934, so still for, you know, three, uh, four or five seasons, he was still drop-kicking this ball that, you know, in the 1920s and early 30s was more like a rugby ball. It was fatter, and you, yeah. know, you could drop it and boot it with a lot more accuracy. But The old melon ball, they called it. I think <laughs> it, it was, was, was a thing. I think, I think Hallis, called a, Hallis called it a pumpkin. The pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, they, they streamlined that to make it a little less girth, so... Uh, a quarterback could get his fingers around the ball, get a little bit better spiral. So good, good move on yep. the NFL's yep. part. <laughs> yeah, and Clark had a, I believe he had a big game in the Lions' first championship in 1935. 
when they played right. the Giants. I'm just uh, I'm just punching up that box score real quick just to make sure my memory isn't too fuzzy. Yeah, he was part of that. It was the first postseason game in NFL history. Uh, decided to uh, because uh, uh, Portsmouth actually back then they had the NFL the team with the best record was declared the champion. Uh, Portsmouth was percentage points ahead of Chicago. Uh, Mr. Hallis uh, decided, hey, we can't have that. He challenged Portsmouth to a championship game, uh, which ended up being played, and uh, Chicago ended up winning. But, yeah, Dutch Clark playing in that That's game. That's right. They had a lot of – that's a change a lot of rules to uh, fit them into Chicago Stadium. They had the inbounds lines and the goalposts, and when they crossed the 50-yard line, they would march the ball back. And right. they ended up – you know, a lot of those rules became the rules in 1933 to help make well, the game more modern and more open. Well, well actually, you know what? Dutch was was not able to play in that championship game, uh, I recollect, because he was the head basketball coach of uh, Colorado College, and his hoops team, which was his regular job, had a game that December 18th. He couldn't get off work to make for the very first NFL championship yeah, game. Yeah, he was probably making more money coaching college basketball than playing professional yeah. football. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Not changed. That's right. So Dutch Clark in 1935 in the championship game, he had 80 yards rushing and a touchdown and an extra point. <laughs> That's amazing. At all. Yeah, definitely Dutch Clark on our list of some of the most substantial number sevens in NFL history. Who do you have up next for our number sevens of all time? I have Clarence Ace Parker of the Brooklyn Dodgers and also the Boston Yanks and the New York Yankees of the All-America Conference, which is a little bit of a story in and of itself because that's still all one franchise. Right. <laughs> Parker was with, started with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1937, and he was a do-it-all player. He was a leader. He was a passer. He was a rusher. He played strong defense, and he led – he, he was the NFL's MVP in 1940. And in 1940 and 1941, the Dodgers actually had a very, very strong team. They were contenders for the East. They finished second both years. And, you know, Parker was the guy on the team. And they were actually, during those couple of years, were actually up considered in the New York area on the same plateau as the Giants, who were always, you know, the kings of football in New York. Right, and he was another triple threat player back then. Uh, he was two way player, uh, great, great ball player. He was. He was probably the best player in New York at the time. You know, other than Mel Hine, but you know, Mel Hine was the center. He was, you know, Parker was the ball handler. But then, you know, 1941, like many, many, many players, he had his football career interrupted by World War II, and he spent three years in the service. He came when he came back. In 1945, when the war was over, because of the man shortage, the Brooklyn, they changed their name to the Tigers in 1944. In 1945, the Brooklyn Tigers merged with the Boston Yanks. So Parker was the quarterback for the Boston Yanks for one season. It was planned to just be a one-year merger, like the Pittsville Steagles and Card Pitt. But the All-America Conference was being formed and the owner of the Tigers decided he wanted to jump leagues and get involved with the All-America Conference. So when they unmerged in 1946, the Brooklyn Tigers became the New York Yankees of the All-America Conference with Parker as their quarterback. And the Yankees actually had a very good season. They won the East and they they played the Cleveland Browns in the first All-America Conference championship game. You know, I've read an interesting story on that, why uh, they end up changing from the NFL to the AFC. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but according uh, to what I read, the Maras were upset because uh, the Yankees wanted to play in uh, just across the river in the stadium. Yeah, the Giants, that's part of their territory. You can't do that. You know, go back out to, to Brooklyn and play. You know, you're too close to our fan base. And, uh, Right. The gentleman, I forget his name, uh, who owned the Yankees at the time, decided, hey, well, forget it. We're going to join this other league so we can you know, get right. into the That's right. There would have been an entry fee, which 
you know, that, you know, this is, I don't want to get too much off topic, but that was a very, very, very expensive competition that, you know, the All-America Conference and the NFL had against each other competing for players. Player salaries went way, way up, and this was right after the war. And, you know, Yankee Stadium was walking distance from the polo ground. You just walk right over the bridge across the Harlem River. And, you know, sometimes the two teams will be playing at the same time. <laughs> and they're, you know, competing. You know, so the Giants' attendance goes down because some players go across the river to watch Ace Parker with the Yankees. Jeez. That's, that's an amazing time. Leagues, by jumping leagues, they don't have to pay an entry fee to the Giants because they're competing with the NFL. And it was, I can't remember, I can't remember the Brooklyn owner's name, but he had a very famous quote that I found in several of the newspapers where he claimed the NFL as being a racket by the big four, meaning the, the Giants, the Redskins, the Bears, and the Packers. He said the whole system is rigged. Nobody else gets a chance. <laughs> and that's uh, part of what uh, had uh, Commissioner Burt Bell uh, that was what his he used this as evidence of why to start the NFL draft, which uh, we know is probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to uh, the NFL. So, wow, great great stories on Ace Parker too. Wow, definitely definitely making our list here of our greatest number sevens. Who do we have next on our list? Uh, we have our second number seven from the Bears, uh, Ed Sprinkle. Oh yes, he was uh, he was a member of the. Uh, the true monsters of the midway. He was, um, you know, he had the nickname the meanest man in pro football. So he put the he put the monster in the Bears. He played <laughs> from 1944 up through 1955, and he was on their one championship team in that stretch, which was 1946. Wow, definitely, definitely a great player there too. Um, I, I had he had four interceptions uh, in his career. He had uh, 32 career passes, right? 32 career passes caught for 451 yards and seven touchdowns. That's right. He he started uh, in in the single uh, single platoon era in the 1940s, and then he finished, you know, in the more modern era in the 1950s, where he was defense exclusively. Truly amazing. Oh boy. Okay. Well, I guess that's it for our our older. era players that uh, were the number seven that made the Hall of Fame. But we have a couple more contemporary players that uh, many of those listening probably got an opportunity to at least watch play on television. Um, show Morton Anderson and John Elway, number sevens. Two more in the Hall of Fame. Great. And I, I think I mentioned uh, last time when we were talking about number one, my, uh, my affinity for uh, left-footed kickers, Morton Anderson, was a left-footed kicker, and he played. He started playing in 1982 when I was in high school, and played all the way up through 2007. Yeah, that's and he, incredible. And he's one of the very few players who's on more than one All-Decade team. He's on the All-Decade team for the 1980s and the 1990s. So not only was he playing for a long time, he was obviously a very, very effective player. For, you know that, for that's five amazing. years. It's amazing you say that because you know 1982. I was just starting high school myself, and by the time his career ended in 2007, I had two of my children that graduated high school by then. So, <laughs> yeah, truly yeah. a great career. Yeah, and I know for the longest time. Yeah, you know, again, last time when we were talking, we we're talking about you know kickers and how records, you know, the accuracy just keeps going up and up and up, and guys make 50 yarders no problem. He was really the first one, like in the 1980s, could kick 50-plus yard field goals with better-than-expected accuracy. And he, I know he held the record for a very long time for field goal percentage. You know, it's since been passed by more recent players, but he held that record for a very, very long time. You're absolutely he did right. It with his left foot. He did it with his left foot. <laughs> <laughs> Putting a different spin on the ball. Season. He yes, he was. One season for the Giants, he was the bulk of his career was the Saints. He started with the Saints, and then he played a long time for the Falcons, and then he bounced around a bit his last couple of years. Yeah, definitely a great player. Definitely deserving of being in the Hall of Fame and on our list of the greatest number sevens to to play the game. Okay, now we get to 
sort of one that everybody knows, Mr. John Elway. What do you think about Elway? I think he is, no question, one of the most unique players I've ever seen play the quarterback position. You know, I remember in the 1980s, you know, uh, my Giants were on their way to their first Super Bowl, and I'm watching the highlights, and I'm watching this guy run this drive against the Cleveland Browns in Cleveland from their own two-yard line. I'm like, oh, <laughs> we got to play him again? Because the Giants played the Broncos in the regular season in Giants Stadium, and that was a really, really tough game. The Giants were, you know, that game was in question all the way till the end. They had a last-minute drive to kick a field goal to win. Elway, he, he had this, he could for a big man, and he could move, and he could throw the ball farther than anyone I've ever seen on the probably in, even including up till today. You know, he could run to the left sideline and throw a ball 50 yards downfield diagonally toward the right sideline and hit a guy between the numbers. <laughs> yeah, that, there's a, I just watched the program the other night. Uh, Peyton Manning has a program on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, has called Peyton's Places, and he had John Elway on just a few weeks ago. And uh, you know, John Elway was uh, Peyton Manning's boss for a few years when he was with Denver. And right. they they talked about Elway's that 98 yard, you know, the drive against Cleveland in the 1986 NFL Championship game, and what was going through Elway's mind. But they showed the replay of that that famous pass, uh, and I forget who his wide receiver was that. The, the, the slant route that he found open in the end zone when the linebacker pulled off on his back. Uh, but he, Elway threw that off balance and sidearmed and threw yeah. a, a powerful ball in the, for that strike for the touchdown. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing him running and making those plays in that muddy jersey. I mean, it, and he was tough. He was physically tough. Yeah, that was, a lot of hits. And yeah, it was Mark Jackson that he. That he Mark Jackson, you're correct. That's right. Yeah. They also talked about the infamous uh, Elway Cross, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah, John Madden used to talk about that. You know, in practice, <laughs> he would throw the ball so hard to receivers that, you know, the, the point on the ball would get embedded <laughs> in the player's chest. Matter <laughs> <laughs> of fact, Manning, just to show that Elway still had the arm strength here, you know, these many years later after his playing days are over, they had a gelatin, uh, like, ballistic dummy set up, and they had Elway throw a ball at him, you know, and the Elway cross was showing up on the, the gelatin <laughs> man uh, still to this day with uh, Elway's arm strength, so great ball player, yeah, uh, great baseball player, too. He could have had a That's great right, baseball you know, career. He had the mechanics, you know, he threw the ball with his whole body. He had, you know, he had those big legs. He almost had, like, you know, running back's legs, which was very, very unusual for the, when he came up in the 1980s. And he would, you know, his body mechanics, he would just get his whole body behind the throw. And I'm sure some of that came from his training of, you know, being on the pitcher's mound. It's interesting you say that because Elway's in that the Peyton Manning episode talked about when he was uh, starting high school playing football. He he played running back when he was younger in Little Gritters. And it's going to those high, first high school practice. His father, who was a, a coach, I believe, at the time was driving him to practice and asked, you know, John, what? What uh, position he's going to go out for? And John goes, "Oh, I'm going to be running back, of course. You know, that's uh, that's a position that I've been playing." And he said, "His dad pulled the car over, and 15 minutes later, he got out of the car and said, hey, Coach, I want to be quarterback.' <laughs> <laughs> you can't waste that arm talent running the ball. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Center, you got to deliver it. <laughs> and Mark, they, they showed, dad. They showed footage of him in high school. You know, so this is you know late 70s. He's playing. Um, yeah. Uh, a spread formation, and he's probably eight, nine yards back in a shotgun formation, almost the position of a punter, playing the spread formation football in high school, <laughs> which the NFL hadn't even really adopted yet at that no, point. No, that, that was pretty rare. You know, like, I remember the Cowboys and the Buffalo Bills, they were the few teams that used the shotgun. Everybody was under center at that time. <laughs> right. Okay, I think that we covered all seven of our Hall of Famers that were the number seven now. So now we want to try to get to that dozen. So we have to come up with five other names, and we have quite an array of, of uh, folks to, to choose from. Uh, one that I want to bring up because uh, he's from my team and currently still playing. Of course, we don't know about next year. But Ben Roethlisberger wearing number seven. Um, Speaking of big quarterbacks. <laughs> yes, yes, Big Ben. Uh, what, what do you have on Big Ben? 
if anything? Big, yeah, well, I, I have a lot. Big Ben, he's, he's actually um, one of the few players on this list that I've actually seen play in person. I was at the game, at the last game of the regular season in 2004 when the Giants hosted the Steelers, and of course Eli Manning and Ben Roethlisberger came out of that very famous quarterback class that year. Along with Philip Rivers that year. And, and Philip Rivers. Right. And Big, yeah. and Big Ben is uh, still going at it. Philip Rivers just played his last game, and you know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, Ben, we're, we're not sure yet, but he's, you know, he's led the, you know, still playing quality football. He had a big year last year, and Steelers won a lot of games, and he's led the NFL in passing yards twice, and he's been in three Super Bowls, and he came away the winner twice. And uh, that's not that's not a bad resume for someone who you and I, I think, probably both agree will end up in the Hall of Fame one day. I, I believe he will. He was a 2004 AP Rookie of the Year. He's played in six Pro Bowls so far. His, uh, I always like to look at that touchdowns and interceptions on quarterbacks. And so far in his career, 396 TDs, 200 interceptions. So almost a, a two to one, uh, touchdown to interception, which is pretty good for a quarterback. And he's thrown for just over uh, 60,000 yards, which is another you know, pretty dynamic, uh, statistic to look at. And he's, yeah. you know, who knows? He's probably not done. All, all the categories, completions, yards, touchdowns. Played in but, a bunch of playoff games, and he's won a couple of Super Bowls. And, and actually, one record that I remember also from that rookie season in 2004, Phil Sims in 1979 set you know what turns out to be a very uh, a modest record, but at the time he won his first four consecutive starts as a rookie quarterback, and that record lasted until 2004 when the Steelers had a a big year that year in 2004, and Roethlisberger won. They finished 15 and one, and Roethlisberger. How many games was it? 13 in a row, or tw- I think he won uh, all 15. 14. Because the game that he lost was the game he came in. He, yeah. he came in against the Ravens. Uh, he was he didn't start that game, and uh, I believe it was that Tommy was Maddox starting. And that was their one loss during the season. They were one and one, so he won four. So the he pushed the record from four wins to fourteen. <laughs> and, and one good or two for, playoff. Good, good luck for the next rookie to break to win fifteen in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you count one or two playoff games that they won, because they end up losing the AFC Championship game to New England that year, and a, a young Tom right. Brady. <laughs> right, they beat the Jets, so so he did get fifteen in a row, but they only count you know it was fourteen in a row in the regular season. Right. <laughs> That's not too bad for a rookie. Not no, too not too bad at all. Not too bad. And and if it is, you know, we don't know, but if it is, if this past season was Roethlisberger's last uh, season in the NFL or last with the Steelers, uh, I mean, he, they, they lost a, a bad heartbreaker to, to Cleveland. Yeah. The way he sort of a game got away from him real early. But he threw for over 500 yards at 38 years old. That's uh, still, yeah. still a pretty impressive number. To bring oh, them he back. Had the ice pack on that shoulder after the game. <laughs> he probably still has it on right now, a month or so later. Okay, we there are a lot of other uh, real good quarterbacks that are on this list, and I'm not sure if you have any in particular you want to bring up or you want me to, to yeah, mention I, one. I have one guy who's really interesting. He had a very unusual career arc. Is uh, Joe Theismann. Oh yes. You no, know, he's a he's a big-time quarterback for the Washington Redskins in the late 70s and the early 80s, and they are actually on that list of highest-scoring teams ever. The 1983 Redskins, they challenged that record by the 1950 Rams for a while. They came just a little bit short, but the 1983 Redskins averaged, I think it was almost, I think it was 34, yeah, it was 33.8 points per game. In 1983, they were coming off the Super Bowl. They had beaten the Dolphins in the strike short year 1982 in the Super Bowl. And the 1983 Redskins were just a ridiculous football machine. They had a great year that year, and they were actually favored to beat the Raiders in the Super Bowl, but didn't quite work out that way. But no. the, you know, the Redskins were 14-2, and two, and they were just demolishing teams, and they 
beat the Rams in, in the in the divisional playoff, fifty-one to seven, and then they played you know a classic game against the Forty Niners in RFK Stadium, an NFL Championship game. But before Theismann became the quarterback, you know he played at Notre Dame and he had, wasn't drafted in the NFL. He ended up playing a couple of years in Canada in the CFL and including returning punts. He was just such a competitor, and he wanted to get on the field. And he was just—he was willing to do anything. He played three years in Canada. He was a punt returner, and then he joined Washington in '74. And he was the backup for a number of years before he—he he took over. And you know, you could see some of that skill that he had. You know, he was a a running quarterback. He could—he wasn't as big as guys like Elway and Roethlisberger. He was a small guy, but he would run, and he played with a single bar face mask, and he wasn't shy about. You know, dropping his shoulder and fighting for extra yards as a runner, and he could throw the ball well. And he was, you know, one of the guys that I watched, you know, growing up. He was in the NFC East. I got watched him twice a week, uh, twice a year against the Giants, and he was playing great games against the Cowboys and got to a couple of Super Bowls, played in Pro Bowls. Yeah, probably one of the games against the Giants he regrets because it sort of ended his uh, his career when uh, Lawrence Taylor hit him on that vicious sack and probably one of the most horrific plays that uh, anybody could ever watch in football with yep. his leg well, going a couple he, different he ways. He like a warrior. He was like one of the Roman gladiators. You know, they carried him off the battlefield on his shield. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, – <laughs> I remember watching that. That was a tough one. That was a yeah, tough I think one. that was a Monday night game, too, I believe. It was, yeah. It was a Monday night. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was a horrific injury. All right, he's definitely under consideration. Uh, I, I have another uh, – person that you probably watched in the 70s that was in the AFC East, Ron Jaworski, uh, were number right. seven. And, and unlike team. Joe Theismann, uh, Ron Jaworski was not known as a runner. <laughs> no, no. He was, <laughs> he was a classic drop back, throw the, ball from the, throw the ball from the pocket. But he was a very, very intelligent player. He was a guy who could read a defense, and he would, you know, go through his progressions, and he would deliver the ball in the right place at the right time to the right guy, and he was a tremendous leader, and, you know, the the Eagles had struggled through much of the 70s, and it was, you know, in the later 70s when uh, Dick Vermeil took over, Ron Jaworski was the quarterback, and they started to climb back, and they made the playoffs several years in a row, and they had that big year in 1980 where, uh, where again, they were favored to uh, beat the Raiders in the Super Bowl, and they it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> Yeah, I think the Raiders yeah, like playing the uh, way of beating the NFC East teams in the Super Bowl. Gross, uh, the, I was going to say that. <laughs> the uh, you know the Eagles they were twelve and four. I remember they had a big big win against the Cowboys at the Vet in the NFC Championship game. It was freezing cold, and the the Eagles wore white jerseys for, to force the Cowboys to wear blue. And um, you know they had a big game, and they went to the Super Bowl with a lot of momentum. But you know that didn't take away from Ron Jaworski's year. That was his first. Pro Bowl season in 1980. You know, there's a lot of parallels between Theismann and Jaworski, besides both playing in the you know opposing teams in the uh, NFC East. Uh, but again, if I look at that couple of different statistics, which this kind of surprised me because I thought them to be pretty pretty much equal uh, as far as starting quarterbacks. But Theismann, his touchdowns, he had 160 touchdowns to 138 interceptions. Uh, Jaworski was 179 TDs to 164 interceptions. Which he, I didn't remember Jaworski throwing that many interceptions, but obviously yeah. he did record. Well, that was just the style of football at the time. It was not abnormal for quarterbacks to have higher interception totals. You know, it was uh, Bill Walsh with his West Coast offense with the 49ers that really reduced that interception. You know, always have a safety valve, always have a a place for the quarterback to deliver the ball when he's in trouble. You know, the offenses prior to Bill Walsh were more vertical, you know, throw the ball downfield. And, you know, coaches would tell their passers, you know, don't be shy about throwing it to coverage, you know, make the play. And, you know, if you're going to throw in or make a mistake, make it deep. You know, a long interception is almost as good as a punt. So it was just a different mentality. And a quarterback, say, throwing 20 touchdowns in a season with, 16 or 17 or 18 interceptions wasn't uncommon. You know, today you'd be horrified. Like, oh, my God, he's killing my fantasy team. He's throwing touchdowns. But look at all these interceptions. 
that it was just different back then. And you know, defenses were at, were able to play against receivers. You know, you could they had the five yard chuck rule, but still you would see guys running downfield with hand checking and contact, and quarterbacks were allowed to get drilled in the pocket. You know, you'd release the ball, and a guy could still take a couple of steps and slam you, and that was just good football. It was just <laughs> a different era. Yeah, the, the other thing is, the other thing that sort of surprised me was was his uh, overall Jaworski's overall record was only four games over five hundred. That shows you some of the the teams that were struggling of the Eagles in those those early seventies yeah. before Vermeil got there. Yeah, it was he was part of the turnaround. He was part of the turnaround, but you know those strong teams they had in the late seventies and there you know nineteen eighty eighty one they were in the playoffs and. He was the guy. He was, you know, the reason that they had those successful seasons. And, he, was and definitely, the, he was part of the growing process. Definitely. And you can tell, even to this day, you see some of Jaworski's film study of current players. It's just, he does a great job of uh, breaking yeah, down he's been film. Doing that forever. You know, like right. Madden, there's a generation of football fans who knew Madden as the guy with the telestrator broadcasting games. And there's a generation of fans that know Jaworski as the guy on the you know, the on ESPN doing the NFL matchup with the same stuff with the diagrams and breaking down plays in real time for everybody. You know, that was he was very, very, very intelligent. He was an excellent player. All right. Uh and I have a few other quarterbacks that I think probably ought to talk about. Uh well, we have another one that that played in the Super Bowl. Uh Boomer Osiason. And yes, I'm not sure. he played in one of the great Super Bowls of the 80s. It was 1988. Yes. That was the year that the Bengals had there. It wasn't a hurry-up offense, but it wasn't a no-huddle. But I, he, I think he was – it was before Jim Kelly and the Bills had the K-gun because they played the Bills in the playoffs, and that's what gave Marv Levy that idea. But they were, you know, rush up to the line, call the play at the line, and, you know, Boomer Siason, another – intelligent player who could read the defense pre-snap and then after the snap he would go through his progressions and deliver the ball to the right guy at the right time and they darn near won that Super Bowl but you know I'm sure when you get to number 16 in uh, a week or two uh, you'll be talking about uh, Joe Montana but that's a whole other story right right they were a very very prolific prolific offense the Bengals under Esiason but here, here's here's his stats: 247 touchdowns, 184 interceptions. Not a bad ratio there. But his win loss as a starter, 80 and 93, under under 500, and it sort of shows. Yeah. Well, later the, his career, he had a couple of rough seasons with the Jets, and then he went to the Cardinals. I'm sure his yeah. I'll bet his record with uh, Cincinnati is above 500. One game over 500, 62 and 61 with the Bengals, 15 and 27 with the Jets, and three and five with the Cardinals. Yeah. Hmm. But again, an interesting one to, to talk about because he did uh, take a team to a Super Bowl. He did. Um, yes. Now, I have uh, one that I a quarterback that I really enjoyed uh, watching when I was younger in the 70s, and that's Burt Jones played for the the Colts. I thought he was an interesting uh, quarterback to watch, and that sort of in that post uh, Unitas era of the Baltimore Colts. They're looking yeah, for a thrower. He was a great quarterback, and he, you know, a lot of arm talent. He was a, you know, great thrower of the football with mechanics, and he had a strong arm, and he was accurate. You know, unfortunately, his career was shortened by injury. Yes. When he yeah, was the Rams, I believe. Yeah, he played his last season with the Rams. Nine with the Baltimore Colts and one with the Rams. 124 touchdowns in his career, 101 interceptions, had an overall record of 47 and 49. With the with the Colts, he was a dead even 46 and 46. Yeah, they had he had a lot of good teams in Baltimore, but then toward the end there in the early 80s, they were declining, and they was they wanted to get younger when he they sent him to Los Angeles, and then he had his injury that unfortunately ended his career. Yeah, and he was uh, an, a first-team All-Pro and MVP of the NFL I show, too. I'm not sure. I think that must have been uh, 1976, possibly. So... Uh, a very interesting player, number seven, for the Baltimore Colts. Uh, another interesting quarterback I have on this list 
is uh, Mr. Randall Cunningham of the Eagles, another Eagles quarterback that wore seven. Hey, didn't we talk about him? He also wore number one. <laughs> I, I think you're right. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Your last time you run. A couple you're of different absolutely. teams, a couple of different numbers, so he's going to show up a lot. Right, and so probably his best number is number 12. <laughs> but, uh, so what, he wore seven with the Vikings, am I correct? Yeah, three uh, three seasons with the Vikings and one with Dallas. He wore number seven. Yeah, and so, he was um, with Minnesota throwing the ball to Randy Moss's rookie season. Yes, he was. Those high arcing passes to that tall, skinny leg receiver downfield. <laughs> Randy Come Moss, Chris Carter. Majority of those 50-50 balls. Right. <laughs> that is definitely right. But, yeah, he was probably his better uh, years were wearing the number 12 with the, the Eagles, except for, you know, like I said, those, those those Vikings years. He did have some good years there, too. But definitely somebody to put a name in there to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, another name that I had is um, uh, we have Ken, Ken O'Brien wore the number seven for about nine, ten seasons uh, with the Jets, I believe. Yeah, they had, he had a couple of really good years in the mid-80s, 1985, 1986. You know, he had some very famous uh, quarterback duels with Dan Marino. You know, the, he, they had that game in 1986 that the, he threw four touchdown passes all to Wesley Walker. He, I think both quarterbacks threw for over 500 yards that day. You know, the Jets won in overtime. It was something like 51 to 45. But any time, you know, in the in the middle eighties when the Jets and the and the Dolphins were playing, you knew there was gonna be uh, balls in the air and a lot of points on the scoreboard. <laughs> yeah, oh, you know, and something I failed to mention with uh Cunningham, he had I mean, I, I thought this was a pretty great stat. Two hundred and seven touchdowns, one thirty four interceptions. So he took care of the ball better than I remembered him doing it, plus all the yardage he gained uh, on the ground with his legs, you know. Phenomenal. And uh, O'Brien ended up having 128 touchdowns in his 10-year career and 98 interceptions for that. So definitely some names to consider there. And uh, let's see, Michael Vick wearing the number seven. Um, probably his best years you know, were Atlanta and with the Eagles, and he wore the uh, number seven with both those teams. Yeah, and, and he had a 1,000-yard rushing season. Yes, yes, he did. Probably, probably the only quarterback of the modern era. You know, first guy since like uh, you know the night, well, I don't know how many quarterbacks in the 1940s were running for a thousand and throwing for a thousand, but that's certainly um, a rare feat. Definitely is. And uh, for his stats, he had 133 career touchdowns, 88 interceptions, a record of 61 and 51. Um, so. Definitely a much better record than than I remembered. I guess uh, his sort of tainted after his um, yeah years absent from the league for some things we won't mention because we're positive football here. We don't want to talk about that. But he came back and wasn't quite the player he was uh, before that uh, that run in he had. Uh, the other the other player I had that I think that you'd like to talk about is Elmer Angsman. All right, uh, going way back. Yes. Chicago Cardinals. Absolutely. So he probably has one of the most um, eye-catching box scores for a championship game in history. The last time the Cardinals won the NFL title was 1947 in Comiskey Park against the Eagles. They beat the Eagles 28-21. Angsman had two 70-yard rushing touchdowns in that game. You know, including one in the fourth quarter that proved to be the game winner. It put the put the Cardinals up 28-14, and they ended up winning 28-21. But for the game, Angsman had 10 carries for 159 yards. Wow. Two touchdowns, including the game winner. So that's a, that's a big game performance right there. 16 yards a carry and, and two touchdowns. Yeah, absolutely. Uh a couple other more modern day quarterbacks. Well, this one's another one from the seventies. Dan Pastorini wore uh, number seven with the Oilers, and with he was they had a year in Oakland where he wore number seven. So that's the majority of his career. Um, Ten of his twelve years were number seven. Um, he ended up having uh, 
His touchdown to interception ratio is not that great. 103 touchdowns, 161 interceptions. So didn't really care for the ball. Yeah, a lot of that is just 1970s football. <laughs> right. Of course, when you have Earl Campbell. <laughs> yeah. Earl Campbell standing behind you certainly takes some pressure off your statistics, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he played a lot of years before Earl Campbell was on the team, but I'm sure Earl made his job a lot easier <laughs> once he arrived. Most definitely. Most definitely. Uh, another one I have is Doug Flutie, who's sort of an interesting, uh, didn't wear number seven long. He wore with, with the Buffalo Bills and um, with San Diego Chargers. Yeah, and seven. another guy who actually he had big years um, in the middle of his career. He left the NFL for Canada, and he's I be, he's in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, and I believe he's pretty universally regarded as the best player in uh, CFL history. Really, over over Warren Moon. I, I think so. Yes, I think really? so. I saw a, I saw an NFL Films feature on Flutie a few years ago, and they had mm-hmm. a lot of guys from Canada, general managers, and players and coaches. And I, I think in, in you know north of the border in Canada, there's a lot of regard for Doug Flutie. They they like him up there. For all the CFL fans. Well, we had uh, we had a friend of mine, Oz Davis, on discussing the number twos, and Flutie also wore the number two on his jersey, and. Uh, Oz is a uh, really enjoys the the CFL game. Knows very knowledgeable about the CFL, and he talked quite a bit about that too with Flutie and the the CFL career and his NFL career. And he ended up making our our top five at list for the uh, the number two uh, players. So yeah, very very interesting player there. Um, I have one other one that I wanted to mention. Actually, two other ones. Um, we have Colin Kaepernick, who played in the Super Bowl, uh, the war of the number seven, an interesting and controversial figure. Yeah, another, uh, another running quarterback. Yes, yes, used his legs well. Uh, was really, uh, when he played for San Francisco, was just a real threat. You know, you didn't know what to do if you were a defender. You know, you didn't want to leave him because he was pretty good with his arm, too, that those couple seasons he had that were really outstanding. Um, and another one is a Craig Morton, who is a longtime player in the NFL, didn't wear seven for very long. Most of the time he was a 14, but with Denver, uh, when he probably had some of his greatest seasons near the end of his career, he was a number seven for Denver That's before right. Jim Kelly. He made a Super Bowl in that number seven. Because he, yes, he spent did. two years with the Giants. No, three years with the Giants. He wore 15. Well, they got him midway in, in the 1974 season. He was 15. He came from Dallas, and then the Giants traded him to Denver, and then he went on to a Super Bowl. Yes, he did. He had a great, great regular season, but uh, like some of our other number sevens, uh, had a had a rough game in the Super Bowl. I, you know, the Dallas had the doomsday defense going, and they ended up with uh, two defensive linemen were co MVPs for the game because they were playing a game of uh, let's meet at the quarterback. <laughs> yeah, it's never a good day for a quarterback when they're playing that game, that's for sure. No, it was Randy White and Harvey Martin, if I remember correctly. They were kind <laughs> I of think you're right. I think you're right. Well, okay, I think we have a pretty good collection of uh, – I mean, we already said we're going to put the, the seven uh, Hall of Famers in. Now, just to review that, we have Morton Anderson, Dutch Clark, John Elway, George Hallis, Mel Hine, Ace Parker, Ed Sprinkle, and Bob Waterfield – Seven Hall of Famers. We have those seven locked up into our our dozen uh, greatest players of uh, wearing the number seven in NFL history. Now we have all these other ones. A lot of them quarterbacks that uh, to decide if, if we can come to some agreement who those other five names should be. Uh, who do you who would you think on your list? I mean, I've I've got a list of five that I'd want. I can go first if you want. Sure. You, okay. I'm I'm going to say Ben Roethlisberger, not only because of he plays for my team, but I think he's going to be probably a first ballot Hall of Famer when his name comes up after he retires. No five question. Years no question. And I'm going to – the other ones are going to be a little controversial and it's debatable. I'm going to say Michael Vick as a number seven should be on the list because I think early in his career, his stats show that uh, he, he was a truly great, substantial player. I'm going to say Boomer Esiason, Ron Jaworski, and Randall Cunningham. That rounds out my my five, that I think. Yeah, have... I, I I like that five. I think um, you know I'm an NFC East guy. 
I definitely got to go for Theismann. I like I like his style of play. I like that he played a few years in the CFL, returning punts, came to the NFL, you know, as a quarterback, and he was multidimensional. He could run, but he could throw. He made it to two Super Bowls. He won one of them. You know, he one of the most prolific offenses, the 1983 Redskins, you know, averaging almost 35 points a game. So, you know, I'm going to put a vote in there for uh, Joe Theismann. Okay, well, who, I, I can't debate that. Who who do you think we should take off that between Roethlisberger, Vic, Asias, and Jaworski and Cunningham? Who would you take off that list to put Theismann in there? Uh, I guess either Vic or Asiasen. That's who I'm thinking also. One of those, you know, uh, Asiasen, he did have a couple of very, very high peak years, but, you know, those you, and not that his his fault, the Jets weren't a good team when he went there, or the Cardinals, but, you know, it's his overall career losing record. But still, you know, he was part of an innovative offense there with Sam Weiss in Cincinnati. Michael Vick, I I think of him more as a runner than a passer. I'm one of those two guys. Okay, I mean, I guess you could go, go either way with that. I'm going to say probably, you know, I think you convinced me. I've I'm thinking I'm going to take Michael Vick off and put uh, Theismann in there, but I think Vick is like a you know a 12A if we're talk, talking to talk 12 on mm-hmm. there. So, so I, you talked me into it. I, I agree with you. I think Theismann ought to ought to be on that list. So hey, that so just again just a review. We have Martin Anderson, Dutch Clark, John Elway, uh, George Hallis, Mel Hine, Ace Parker, Ed Sprinkle, Bob Waterfield, Ben Roethlisberger. Boomer Esiason, Ron Jaworski, Randall Cunningham, and uh, Joe Theismann as our top 12 number sevens ever to win the game. Uh, that's the list that Larry Schmidt and I have come up with uh, for this uh, pigskin uh, dispatch uh, football by numbers. And, uh, Larry, we really appreciate your time and uh, coming on again to talk with us. Uh, before we let you go, do you have anything coming up that you, you want to talk about, any projects you have with the Big Blue Interactive or with the uh, – the Gridiron Uniform database that you got coming up that our uh, listeners could take a look at. Well, Bill and I are we're always busy behind the scenes doing lots of research for the Gridiron Uniform database. Um, we spent the last few days, he and I. I don't want to give away the surprise, but uh, keep an eye on the early 1930s Bears. There's going to be um, a little bit of a makeover that might be a little might be a little surprising. It'll definitely be interesting. For any yeah. or any fans of 1930s football, you're going to see the Bears come up with a change. He and I have been working on that, um, and I'm just you know I'm working on my book slowly but surely. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, so hey, when you in writing, it's going to it's going to take me a long time. <laughs> it's going to take a couple of years. Well, I'll tell you what. If you, if you were Bill, uh, make sure you drop me a line when you put out your announcement on your findings. Uh, I'll be sure to share it on the podcast and on pigskindispatch.com website so that folks can uh, be steered your way to take a look at that Gridiron Uniform database website to, to see what the surprise yeah, is. Yeah. I'm anxious now. I'll let you know. It should be okay. week, I think. All right. Well, Larry Schmidt, thank you once again for joining us. We really appreciate your time and for uh, all the great research and history that you brought to us here on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's always lots of fun. Uh, it definitely is. Thanks, Larry. Well, we have great thanks to offer to uh, Larry Schmidt for once again joining us on a great discussion on the uh, number seven jerseys. I uh, hope you enjoyed that, and uh, hopefully we'll have Larry on again. But we have some other great guests coming on to discuss uh, football by numbers coming up. Uh, for the number 10s and 11s, we have Warren Rogan of the uh, Sports Forgotten Heroes podcast uh, you can find on the Sports History Network. Very interesting uh guy he is a great historian of sports i think you'll really enjoy the number 10s and 11s with him and for the number 12s we have another great uh, sports history network podcaster and that's dana auguster of the historically speaking podcast and dana brings some great insight to the great legends that wore the number 12 jersey and i think you'll enjoy that too and like i said we have a lot of things coming up in the near future and i think you'll enjoy and don't forget february 25th we have our great interview with upton Bell. 
Bell, the son of Burt Bell, the former commissioner of the NFL. And Upton has a great uh, football uh, resume to himself, too, in the NFL, as well as his grandfather. Uh, this family's been around football for ages, and I don't want to spoil anything for you, but I'm just telling you what, you don't want to miss it. February 25th, it's his father, Burt Bell's birthday, and what a better way to do it than to celebrate with his son, Upton, who has some great cherished moments to share with you about football history. So, uh, so we'll wait till February 25th to have that one, but we have plenty of podcasts in between. So make sure you join us tomorrow. Hit that subscribe button, hit us up on pigskindispatch.com forward slash podcast, or see us on the sports history network.com where you can see other great sports uh, podcasts too on sports history, uh, sports history network.com. So till tomorrow, everybody have a great gridiron day. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.